Welcome to the Brown Journal World Affairs Podcast. My name is Caitlin Chan, and I'm a business podcast coordinator for the Brown Journal World Affairs, a biennial journal of international relations and foreign policy produced at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. The podcast seeks to explore international affairs and policy issues via a series of interviews with distinguished academics, policymakers, and activists. We are honored to be hosting our next guest of the podcast today, Brown University Professor Ronald Obear. Professor Obear has maintained a distinguished career of academic and government roles, with a focus on the impacts of rising pharmaceutical drug prices on health and healthcare systems in the U.S. Among many other roles, he has been a commander for the U.S. Public Health Service and the chief of the Epidemiology Section, Division of Diabetes Translation at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. At Brown, Dr. Obear is the Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion for the School of Public Health and a visiting professor of the practice of race and ethnicity and health services policy and practice. Professor Obear, thank you for joining us today. To start off, can you tell us a little bit about your background in public health and how you first became involved in your field of research? Sure. So I, uh, when I was an undergraduate like yourself, I wasn't sure what the heck I wanted to do. So I poked around and it was a colleague of mine that actually told me to think about public health, which I had no idea exactly what that meant. But I uh, started looking at graduate programs, looking at descriptions of different departments. And so I decided to apply to graduate school in epidemiology um, just to continue my, try to continue my education. So I didn't have a lot of vision when I did that. But I started epidemiology and I really, really enjoyed it. I liked the idea of having population focus on health rather than individual patient, which you would do in medicine. Um, so this was one route that you, you could consider as a student. So I decided to pursue not only the master's, but then I got my PhD in epidemiology. And that process also made me want to do more applied work rather than academic work. So I, I was very intentional on uh, leaving graduate school and doing more applied work. So I left graduate school and went to the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta and Epidemic Intelligence Service Officer, EIS's people, uh, commonly referred to it, which is a two-year fellowship in applied epidemiology. So I did that, stayed on at CDC for a while, and then I started getting interested in questions that related to more healthcare financing and healthcare delivery. And so then I had the opportunity to join what we refer to as a startup well, startup is not a not unique, but a research a health outcomes research group. And so I, I joined that group and had a tremendous experience there. They they were really trying to solve questions or problems that related to healthcare access and more so around improving quality of healthcare delivery. And so as I tell my students, once you enter the private sector, you sign up for instability. So we got bought by a competitor. And so I was on the job market and ended up going to work for a something called a pharmacy benefit manager or, or commonly referred to as a PBM. Again, piece of healthcare, I had no idea what the heck that was or what they did. But I felt like it was an opportunity for me to learn something different. And so I joined PBM, very similar group. Again, outcomes research. This was this was called clinical analytics and outcomes research at the time. And so I uh, joined that group and uh, eventually became a vice president of what we refer to as advanced analytics 
And in that capacity, we're doing a lot of very interesting work, even around understanding drug gene interactions, trying to figure out how to make the, the pharmacy benefits smarter than it was with respect to messaging docs about prescription selection and dosing. And so again, we got bought by a competitor and I was back on the job market, <laughs> which um, I did consulting for a while and then uh, joined a pharmaceutical company as head of a health economics and outcomes research group. And uh, while I was there, Brown reached out to me and asked if I would consider coming to Brown, um, which is where I am now. This is my fourth year at Brown. You teach a class at Brown called From Manufacturer to Patient. Why is the cost of prescription drugs so darn high? Which looks at several external influences that impact generic drug costs in the United States. Like many other courses, yours also looks towards the future to discuss how future rising costs may be managed. However, it's key to understand how we got to our current situation in the first place. With that in mind, can you talk a little bit about the factors that led to such a steep rise in prices? Are there any in particular that you believe created a greater impact, or is it a combination of several things? Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a great question. So I think if you look back in the 70s and 80s, the United States was no different in terms of their drug spin and trend compared to other OECD countries. But in the 90s, we really started to break away from the pack. And that could be related to more expensive products coming to market, especially in the category that we refer to as specialty. And those drugs tend to have um, special needs, uh, or usually for more limited audience, but they have special needs in terms of handling sometimes, or it could be refrigeration, it could be radioactive, those kinds of things. And so those drugs started to really become more pervasive and those are very, very expensive. And so we started to see a lot uh, of those penetrate the market in the United States. And that's one reason that we started seeing escalating drug costs. And then the other is that you know, with an aging population, there's an increase in, in the kinds of conditions that require the treatment of uh, certain medications. So our drug spend started to really, really take off in the starting in the 90s, especially is probably one of, so it's a combination of reasons, I think, but specialty products is probably, and the uniqueness of the United States healthcare system is probably one of the major drivers of why we uh, are seeing such high prices. One of the most often cited examples of the out-of-bounds pharmaceutical prices in the U.S. is insulin. As usually noted, vials cost on average around $3 to produce for manufacturers, but sell for around $300 per vial. Furthermore, some patients may need three to four vials of insulin per month, leading to costs of over $1,000 per month. One reason given for rising insulin prices is the implementation of newer patents where the drug is slightly modified. Do you consider this to be the sole reason? Is creating more and more patents really reasonable or is it simple greed from pharmaceutical companies? This is such a complicated issue, insulin in particular. Um, I think, you know, this has been a big, big topic for the last four or five years. And um, about, about three or four years ago, there was a session at the American Diabetes Association Scientific Conference where they it was dedicated just to trying to understand this problem where they had manufacturers represented, PBMs are represented, health plans, advocacy groups, really trying to get under the problem of increasing prices. Now, 
from the, on the manufacturer side, it appears that over time, their margins have actually decreased on these products, even though the, the cost, the cost of the prices have gone up. And so um, one, of, one of the reasons people cite for that is that there's this increase in what they call the rebate structure, which is very unique to the US healthcare system. I don't think any other healthcare system has anything like that. And so, and with, with the payers represented by the PBMs, health plans requiring more and more rebates, the manufacturers basically have to increase the price to cover that. And so they, they so it's not so much, the, the modifications may drive some of the price increases, but probably not as much as one would think. And so people, people think it's the rebate structure that's, that's heavily contributes to that based on this notion that the margins have declined or stayed flat for insulin for uh, the last several years. And so I think it's, it's more complicated than that. I guess this, this is one area that's really complicated. And the people who get impacted the most are those who have who don't have insurance at all. They get, they get hammered because they pay the full cost. Or those who have high deductible plans and are, and are in their deductible phase because they, they face the you know, uh, unreasonable, they face a full cost while they're in the deductible phase. And so those are the people who are most vulnerable to these, uh, to these high costs. Now, in the past, you know, first one, um, pharmaceuticals never represented that much of the total healthcare spend. So most people didn't pay attention to it. But over the last 20 years or so, they've become a bigger, bigger part of the healthcare spend. So people are paying attention to them and they have to figure out how they're gonna manage them. And so I think, um, you know, I think when high deductible plans became um, popular, then people started seeing the cost and started feeling the cost of, you know, what these medications cost and uh, what these medications, what they have to pay for these medications. And so that's, that's, been, the, that's been the real sort of eye-opener in terms of people becoming aware that these things are so expensive. To follow up on that answer, EpiPens are also another commonly cited example of the outrageous overpricing of drugs. Can these high costs be attributed to the same reasons? That's a little different. EpiPen is, uh, those were, uh, so the EpiPen really hasn't changed that much over the course of its history. Um, there have been slight modifications, some safety things that have been made, but those were price increases that were that were put in place by the manufacturer um, over that period of time when we had the most explosive growth without a lot of real changes to the overall uh, structure of the product. So that's one, that was a little bit different. And for a long time, EpiPen was in a class by itself. So there were no rebates that were that were paid by, by the manufacturer because there was no competition. The rebate structure only works if, in situations where you have competition and for a long time EpiPen was the only game in town. That's that's only been for the last few years actually. So it's a it's a different scenario. And that that one, you know, the manufacturer made decisions to make to make price increases. Um, and they did several over the course of the time they acquired the product from a much smaller company to the point where the prices hit their pinnacle, which is like six hundred bucks for $600 for a pair of pens and I forget 
2018, 2016 or so. So that's a, a bit of a different story. Mark Cuban, the billionaire entrepreneur, has just launched a new venture, the Cost Plus Drug Company, where he promises to make only a 15% profit on every type of generic drug on the market. Do you think companies like Cost Plus are realistic solutions to the current issues with drug prices, or would they simply represent the major governmental neglect that's happening? Sure, that's a, that's a problem. I mean, it, and it really is tragic because the people who really suffer, not the poorest of the poorest, really the working poor, people who are working, earning wages, but they don't earn enough, they earn too much to qualify for Medicaid, but they don't earn enough to be able to uh, purchase insurance on the exchange, particularly if they're in a non-expansion state, non-Medicaid expansion state. So it's, those are the people who really, really get hammered by this because they end up paying, if you're, if you're, if you're really poor, you can qualify for Medicaid if your income is below a certain level. Those levels tend to be pretty low. So if you're, if you're, if you're working um, and you just don't make, and you make too much for Medicaid, the way it's currently constructed, you're, you're, you just, you're just gonna have a tough time. And so those people are really, I tend to people, those tend to be people who are, Frontline workers, you know, people who are work for for wages, either at or below minimum wage. And so I think those people, or the, that that population, these community members, really have the most difficult time with uh, medical care costs in general. So they're they're really out there with no no place to go other than free clinics or community or federally qualified community health centers which tries to provide coverage for those people who can in a situation where they have access, but there's so many places where they don't. As part of President Biden's Build Back Better plan, insulin prices will be capped at $35 for both Medicare Part D and private and individual plans. However, this still leaves out a portion of the population that has no insurance, such as those that fall into the Medicaid coverage gap. Can you talk about the impacts that this gap may have on already existing health inequities? Yeah, so this is a this is a tough one. I think there needs to be some innovation in the space, without a doubt. But trying to figure out exactly where a play like this fits, right? Because really, this model only going to cater to those without insurance or those with uh, uh, who are underinsured. So I don't really, I'm not really sure how. I don't know where this really fits because if you have insurance. For a generic product, your copay is typically between five and six dollars. So, for, for the most part, and so I can't. I don't. I don't know how this. I'm still curious to see how this is going to play out. I, I, I follow this every time there's a publication or or a story about it. I try to read up on it and see where they are because I do think there is a place for some sort of innovation. Um, but I don't know if these kinds of ventures are going to really make that big of a difference. It's sort of just chipping away still. And 15% margin on a generic may still be relatively expensive for an unsure person. In addition to serving as a visiting professor to the School of Public Health, you also hold a position as a professor of the practice of race and ethnicity here at Brown and are also the Dean of Diversity and Inclusion. Race and ethnicity factors play a huge role in healthcare delivery in the U.S. Are these impact enhanced in the world of pharmaceutical drugs because of a potential combination of social and economic factors. 
Sure, absolutely. Anytime you have social disparities, they they sort of they ripple throughout everything else, every other fabric of our society. I think healthcare is no different, and pharmaceuticals is no different. And so, you know, you think about the way the distribution of disease works in in our just saying the U.S. without even thinking globally, that you know people with uh, the lowest resources tend to have the poor eating habits, exercise less, and then they end up with a lot of the chronic conditions also contributed to by a, a higher level of this background stress. And so I think um, and then those people are also eligible for treatment with medications, maybe sometimes two to four different medications. So then if you're not, if you don't have good insurance coverage again, you are vulnerable to not taking medications as prescribed. So your adherence is not gonna be as, as good as you'd like it to be to be able to manage those conditions. And you, and for those things that are preventable, they're more difficult because of the lack of adequate food sources and the lack of safe places to exercise or to, I mean, there's a whole cascade of things that happen in, a, in our society where we have inequities with respect to a whole host of social determinants of health. You also recently co-authored a research paper on diabetes medication adherence in 2015. Many of the factors associated with higher adherence, such as lower out-of-pocket expenses, higher education, and being of the male sex, are also commonly seen as the source of health inequities for other fields. To change these differing levels of adherence would be a great undertaking, and quite honestly, one that may not be possible without a large-scale overhaul of the legislation in place. With the delicate political situations in the U.S., would something of this nature even be possible? So, you know, that's a tough, that's uh, you know, you, I thought, I really thought that the, uh, the pandemic would help let us think a little differently about how we vision healthcare in this country. But, um, you know, that doesn't seem to be the case because I think one of the things, vast number of Americans, had a chance to discover is what, how tightly their healthcare was tied to their jobs. And we had these periods of massive job loss where people also lost their healthcare coverage. And so I thought that that would sort of create a different political perspective and view on uh, the notion of, uh, of healthcare being tied to your employer. But that doesn't seem to have been the case so I'm not really sure. In comparison to the U.S., many European nations do not experience these issues with drug prices to the same extent, mainly because most nations operate on the single-payer system, something that many Americans are strongly opposed to. So, to step into the future a bit, to what extent can you see these rampant financial issues with drug delivery changing in the next 10 to 15 years with the current American payer system? Do you believe change is possible? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I gotta, I'm just gonna be very honest. I, uh, I'm putting all my marbles on your generation because I don't really think that, uh, I think we squandered our opportunity. And so I think it's gonna take a whole different, fresh set of leadership with a different kind of energy and a different kind of perspective in terms of how they view, you know, just humans and how they review each other 
and treat each other as citizens of a global community. I don't think that the way our system is so trenched in the little change is very difficult, like the Build Back Better Act, which had some pharmaceutical provisions in it, which were quite modest, actually. You know, they're talking about trying to pack some of those and sub submit them individually, but I don't think I'm, I'm pessimistic at this point. I'm really, really putting all of my, you know, my whole hope <laughs> is in your generation to make something that's, that we can recognize as real change. Lastly, is there anything else you would like to know on the present or future conditions of the healthcare market? Yeah, you know, now despite all the gloom and doom that I've uh, projected, I do think that there are some people who are thinking in very innovative ways to try to do something soon. And I think it's, it's I'm not sure where that's going to come from. It's probably not going to come from government until your generation takes its seat. But I do think um, there are other pockets of things that are happening, particularly smaller biotech from the entrepreneurial side of things, people really kind of focused on healthcare. Um, there may be some things that happen that will give us some glimmers of, of uh, possibilities, I should say. So I think that's, and that's a good thing. And I, and, I, and I think also like some of the bigger payers are very frustrated with how things have uh, gone, how much they have to pay every, every year. And that's sort of the sub, Cross subsidization that they're subjected to, they are they're they are they're probably meetings happening right now that we don't have know nothing about where they're trying to figure out what they're going to do about that because I think people are there is a general level of frustration so we'll see how that plays out but I think the biggest change from a structural political climate is going to it's going to take another generation like yours so so I'm hoping you're up to the task. That concludes this episode of the Global Visions podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you to Professor Aubert for the opportunity to speak with him today. We'll see you next time.